You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Sarah McHugh, USLHS volunteer, taproom and events manager for Break Rock Brewing in Quincy, Massachusetts, and traveling companion of Code of the Lighthouse Dog. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Jeremy. I'm excited to be back on the podcast, and I actually have Code of the Keeper sitting here with me right now. Cool. Well, thanks again for, for doing this. Always a pleasure. So today is April 3rd, 2022, and this is episode 167 of Lighthearted. In a couple of minutes, we'll hear a conversation I had with a former longtime lighthouse keeper in England, David Appleby. So how's your spring going so far, Sarah? My spring's going really well. Um, it's great to finally have some sunshine later in the day and warmer weather coming up and moving in. So I'm just really excited to get back outside. Yeah, I agree with all of the above. Yeah, it is. That's a beautiful day. A little, little chilly, but a beautiful day today. Uh, so when I last saw you in a Zoom meeting, you were actually sitting in your car with uh, Coda, the lighthouse dog. You had just left the Cape Cod Canal area. I think you said you had just visited Ned's Point Lighthouse in Manapoiset, Massachusetts. It's a nice spot. I've been there uh, a number of times over the years. Yeah, uh, Coda and I went down on my day off and we walked walked a bunch of the Cape Cod Canal bike path, and then we visited Ned's Point Lighthouse. And again, that day, we were super lucky to have some some beautiful spring weather to explore. Yeah, that's well, a nice big uh, park there where Ned's Point is. Probably Coda enjoyed uh, to get to run around a little bit there. Oh, yeah. Good. Any other plans, uh, any other lighthouse visits planned as uh, the weather gets uh, even warmer and nicer? Nothing formally planned, but I would really like to visit more of the Hudson River Lighthouses. Mm. Um, that's where I grew up. And until I started to get into the, the New England Lighthouses and go on some adventures around here, I had never even thought of the Hudson Valley as a lighthouse destination. So I'm excited to go visit home and my family and, and hopefully see some of those lighthouses. Yeah, well, it's a great bunch of lighthouses. I believe it's about seven lighthouses on the Hudson River. And uh, I wrote a book on them some years ago. And uh, it's, it's wow. a beautiful area. Yeah. And I just interviewed Sarah Wasberg Johnson from the Hudson River Maritime Museum a few weeks ago for the podcast. She was great. Maybe you can stop in there too when you're in the, the neighborhood yeah. in, uh, in Kingston. So, uh, yeah. And I'll have to give that one a listen too. So I'm also looking forward to a, a busy lighthouse season. I'll be spending a week in Michigan in April and then a few days in Buffalo, New York uh, in June. I'll be in England and Ireland if things uh, go according to, to plan. I'm sure hoping they do. Uh, that'll be the, the whole month of July. I'll do a bunch of podcast interviews in all those places, shoot some video along the way. Also, there's something else I wanted to mention. You are now involved with the development of new content for the U.S. Lighthouse Society's social media pages. And uh, we had a meeting recently about this. There's something pretty exciting in the works, right? Yeah, and I'm definitely super excited about the new social media efforts as well. Just as a little teaser, we're looking to put together a TikTok dance challenge at Lighthouses. So we're still kind of figuring out what that'll look like, but I think that should be super exciting and, and give people of all ages a way to engage with Lighthouses. Yeah, I think it's really exciting. So people listening to this podcast are getting kind of the advanced scoop on this. We haven't officially announced it yet. 
Uh, I'm not sure exactly when that's going to happen, but I think it's going to be fairly soon. But it's not too early for people to start practicing their lighthouse dances. I think the idea is going to be that uh, they should do uh, something at a lighthouse, maybe in front of a lighthouse or possibly, I suppose it could be inside a lighthouse. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if, if you're listening and you're interested in helping out with this or you have some ideas to please reach out and let us know, because I'd love any and all ideas on how we can make this a big, big effort and a big push to get more of the lighthouses out there. Yeah, yeah. And we're making a push on social media in general. So I encourage people to post on their own, both Instagram and TikTok accounts, Facebook too, of course. Uh, but on Instagram or TikTok, if they if you post something, whether it's a video or pictures of uh, lighthouses, if you can tag uh, hashtag USLHS, then we can find them easily. And anybody looking for USLHS related stuff will find them. So that'd be great. Sarah, please help me tell everyone about today's guest. Sure, Jeremy. David Appleby was a lighthouse keeper in England for 32 years. After he was hired by Trinity House in 1965 and trained at Harwich, he spent some time as a supernumerary keeper at various light stations. His first assignment as an assistant keeper was at isolated Eddystone, one of the most famous lighthouses in the world. Other stations where David worked included Wolf Rock off Cornwall and Longstone in the Farne Islands. His longest stint was seven years at Lynmouth Foreland in North Devon. David was the last keeper at St. Mary's Light and Suter Point Light, and he was one of the last crew of lighthouse keepers in England when he left the North Foreland Light in 1998. He lives today in northeastern England. It was a pleasure speaking with David via Zoom recently. I think people are really going to enjoy this one. So let's listen to my conversation with David Appleby now. I'm speaking this morning, or at least it's morning where I am in New Hampshire, and uh, I think late in the afternoon where he is in, in England. I'm speaking with former lighthouse keeper David Appleby. So at his home in northeastern England. Thank you so much for being with me today, David. Yeah, you're welcome. I really appreciate it. This is going to be a lot of fun. We were just uh, chatting a little bit a, a moment ago, and you told me that you were working on listing all the, the lighthouses uh, where you were stationed in your career, in your uh, more than 30-year career. You said you uh, and all were at 26 lighthouses, some of them, I guess, briefly, but that's, that's pretty amazing. It surprised me, you know, when I started going through them. Yeah. I uh, I thought, blimey, 26. I didn't didn't realize I'd been to as many as that. Some of mm-hmm. them only for a brief time. Yeah. In fact, I think Beachy Head, I only spent a day on. I worked at Dungeness, and then we used to go from Dungeness to Beachy Head mm-hmm. um, to do the cleanup. It was automatic at the time, you know. Yeah. Right. Well, that's pretty amazing. We uh, we can't touch on them all today, but we're going to talk about a bunch of them. Starting out, let me just ask you, what made you decide to be a lighthouse keeper in the first place? Well, I hadn't I'd had just a basic education at school and jobs were easily available in 1960, 61. And I did a few jobs, uh, office jobs. And then I decided to join the police. So I was in the police for a couple of years. And um, then I joined, I was working in the gas board, the local gas board, a clerical job. And um, I didn't really like it. And my friend showed me a, a newspaper cutting that lighthouse keepers required by Trinity House. So I thought, oh, I'll give that a try, thinking I might like it, I might not like it. 
anyway, I, I joined and I liked it. And 32 years later, uh, I left, you know, the, 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 the uh, last lighthouse uh, in the UK, North Orland. Yeah. Uh, now, in the UK, there was something uh, under Trinity House, uh, something called supernumerary keepers, sort of like a apprenticeship, as I uh, understand it, where you would uh, travel around and spend time at different lighthouses, kind of learning the, the trade, basically. is it? Do I have that more or less correct? Uh, that's right. Yes. Um, you did your, your basic training at Harwich. Um, I think it was for a month, and that included um, basic soldering diesel engines, tying knots, baking bread, all sorts of things. And then yeah. for the first year or so, you, you went round different lighthouses, learning about radio beacons, the, the various lights, uh, batteries, all that kind of thing, everything to do with lighthouses. So I spent a, a year doing that, and then I was appointed to, uh, to Eddystone. Any other lights that stand out for you during that period, uh, during your time as a supernumerary keeper? Um, I started at Suter Point. Then I went on to um, South Bishop. From South Bishop, I went to Whitby. Then I went to Cromer. And from Cromer Lighthouse, I went to the Longstone. And then I had a, a signal from Trinity House saying you're appointed to Eddystone. Okay. Yeah. And you were you later ended up going back and spe spending more time at both Souter and Longstone, right? Yes. yes. So, we'll, so let's talk about Eddystone. I would say Eddystone is maybe the most famous lighthouse in the world, certainly right up there at the top of the list. So yeah. uh, again, that was your first assignment as an assistant keeper uh, for, I think most of our listeners, you know, most of our listeners are lighthouse buffs. So I think most of them are familiar with, with Eddystone, but it's about about 13 miles, I think statute miles offshore from Plymouth, England. Yes. Mm -hmm. And the lighthouse that's there now is the fourth one built on the Eddystone Rocks and going back to the late 1600s. It's quite an amazing story, which we've, we've talked about on this podcast before. But what was life like at the Eddystone Lighthouse? Well, Eddystone, I was pleased to be appointed there because, as you say, it's probably the most famous lighthouse in the world, you know, pro probably. So it was, it was very, you know, I thought, what, what's this going to be like? You know, you know, I wasn't used to a tower rock, which is limited in space. And I do remember the first time I went on a boat relief, and I remember looking out the window and seeing the lighthouse tender go away, you know, in the distance. And I thought, <laughs> blimey, I'm, I'm here for two months at least, you know. Um, and that was a bit of a shock, you know, really. But the Eddystone is a bigger tower than the Smalls and the Wolf Rock. So there's much more room there. And the, and the keepers were great. You know, I got on well with the keepers. So, yeah. Well, that's important if you're going to be in a place like that for, for a couple of months at a time. And yeah. how many other, how many were assigned to Eddystone? How many were there at one time? And part two of that question is that were there like uh, shifts? Did you keep watch for certain hours? Uh, yes, the watches were like ship's watches. Um, midnight to four o'clock, 0400 to 1200, 1200 to 2000, 2000 to 2400, to 2400. It was um, a good place to be. But um, as I say, it, it took me a while to get used to the conditions and 
Um, we didn't have a proper toilet. It was just at Elson, uh, which was halfway down the tower in the winch room. So we just had to throw it out the door. You know, it was mm-hmm. very, it was very primitive. Yeah. Um, no showers, nothing like that. You just washed at the kitchen sink. I still look back on it, you know, and I think, yeah, it was it was good. It was a good place. Yeah. And there were how many assigned there at one time? Um, there were three keepers um, doing eight-hour and four-hour watches. And, of course, you did two months on and then a month off. Occasionally it was overdue, but Eddie Stone wasn't as difficult to relieve as uh, Wolf Rock was, say. As far as the sea conditions, uh, Wolf Rock was was worse. Is that the case? Yeah, Wolf Rock was much worse. Uh, Eddie Stone was bad, but um, I didn't have many. I think three or four days overdue was the most I ever uh, had on Eddie Stone. Mm-hmm. Anything else that really stands out in your memory before we move on from Eddie Stone? Um, the thing that sticks in my mind about Eddie Stone is a strange one, really, is when you look down from the top of Eddie Stone, uh, there were hundreds of bass fish around the rocks, you know. That, that's the thing that always kind of sticks in my mind. Mm. I think they use it as a breeding place, you know, with the the, the, the rocks around there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you fish for them? Um, I didn't, but uh, one of my fellow keepers did. Yeah. Um, but he found that the, the only way he could catch them was when it was very rough weather. He brought some really big ones in, you know, when it was very rough southwest swell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, was it Eddie Stone, that um, there was somebody tried kite fishing there um, from the top of the, the lighthouse, you know, and then mm. he, a kite goes out and then he can lower the uh, line under the sea, you know, to, to avoid the rocks. So that was quite a skillful yeah. uh, thing to do. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That must have been really interesting. I love to see, I've never seen that. I love to see, uh, I wonder if anybody ever took any film or anything <laughs> of that. Yeah. I'd really like to see that. So um, we'll talk about Wolf Rock next, but, uh, and obviously uh, it's another uh, famous rock lighthouse as you, in the UK, you refer to these places as rock lighthouses here, sometimes they're referred to as wave swept, uh, or you might call them sea swept lighthouses, uh, ones like Eddie Stone and Wolf Rock. Uh, mm-hmm. But let's just talk in general for a minute. At a place like Eddie Stone and, and Wolf Rock, what were the typical duties of a keeper there? Um, well, it was very much a routine. You know, you had to stick to a routine. Uh, the morning watchman, four o'clock till 0400 or 1200. He did most of the routine sort of work when the other two keepers were in bed. Uh, and it entailed just keeping the place clean, cleaning floors, polishing brasswork. And each day there was a particular job you had to do. Maybe Monday was cleaning the lens. Tuesday might be the brasswork, you know, and um, engine room on Wednesday. And so it, it was very much a routine sort of job, you know, that, that you had to um, uh, stick to. Uh, if, and, and then if there were any other jobs where all three of the keepers, well, you all joined in and, and did the job. I mean, I remember on Eddie Stone once um, we, we painted the lantern, um, which was red, 
And it was a, a quite a, a funny story, really, because it was started, I think it was about the first day it was started, and I was inside the lantern, and Roger had gone on top to paint the top. Uh, no health and safety there, it was just a ladder. And I was inside, and suddenly the, a tin of red paint crashed down, and it was all over the outside glazing, you know, so panic stations, you know, all up and cleaning it with... Uh, Ugh. You know, mess and <laughs> to get this red paint off the Ugh. off the lantern. Yeah. Well, that sounds pretty horrible, but at least he didn't fall. Uh, mm. That would have been worse than the paint falling. Yeah, um, yeah. So you were at Eddie Stone for how long? Um, about two years. Uh huh. And then I was appointed to um, Wolf. Wolf. Yeah. That's it's quite it's a really quite a, a legacy. I mean, to say you were stationed for two years at Eddie Stone Lighthouse in itself is is uh, is pretty impressive. So, uh, how was Wolf? What was Wolf Rock Light? It's off Cornwall. Uh, it's another again very famous rock lighthouse. Uh, kind of similar uh, similar structure to Eddie Stone. How long were you at Wolf Rock? What what was that like? Uh, again, I did uh, two years on the Wolf. I mean. Mm -hmm. uh, Wolfrock was you didn't you couldn't do more than two years, even though I think some people did. But officially, if you went to the Wolf, you know you you they said, "Oh, two years is enough on a place like that," because uh, of its difficulty in getting relieved and it cramped conditions. And uh, uh, when I was there, I mean, I once um, I once left home December the twenty seventh, and I didn't get home till March the 26th because um, even on a calm day at the Wolf you only had an hour to do the um, the, 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 the relief and um, one of the other problems there was if you couldn't get down on the landing the landing got covered with seaweed and mm. you had to so you had to get down there and put lime on it otherwise you'd be slipping all over the place you know Mm -hmm. So it was a it was a difficult place to relieve. Yeah, I'm curious at, at both Eddie Stone and Wolf Rock. Did uh, you were taken back and forth in in uh, Trinity House vessels, right? Um, mm. But did did you also have your own? You must have had uh, one or more small boats at the the lighthouse for the keeper's use. Uh, no, no, you didn't. It was, you, you, it was impossible to do. You it was know, impossible. You, um, okay. Yeah, you, you, um, the Trinity House boat THV Stella uh, used to come out from Penzance, and then uh, lower their launch from the Stella, and then this the the launch would come to. There was a small boy about quarter of a mile away from uh, Wolf Rock. The launch would fix itself to this boy and then come in on the boy. And then we would rig a crane on the landing, which mm -hmm. was um, stored in the base of the tower. Um, it took us about 20 minutes or so to do that. And then, of course, you'd throw the, the uh, heaving line and then the relief would start, you know, and you'd be, you'd be hauled on by this crane, hauled on and off by... You couldn't really go alongside the rock. I don't think it was ever always you had to go from a, you know, like a a, a, a launch, you know. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, I've seen film of uh, transfers at these places, not specifically. I'm not sure if I've ever seen one at Eddie Stone or Wolf Rock, but there's maybe you've seen it. There's a, a video uh, from France, I believe, of a, a really, uh, you know, remote offshore lighthouse with a, a change in uh, keepers there. And it's uh, that's been, mm. you know, posted so many times on social media and everything. People oh, are just yeah, uh, yeah. absolutely amazed by it. It's pretty in- incredible the way way that was done. But I'm surprised. Yeah. I, I guess I thought for emergencies, you had some kind of small boat there. But um, I guess if there was a, a major storm, like a cataclysmic storm, you were you were there <laughs> no matter what. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I, saying that, uh, Jeremy, yes, I, I think there w- was. Um, an inflatable boat, you know, oh, okay. that, that yeah. in the base of the tower, but that it would have to be a really dire emergency if that was used, you know. Was, I understand. Um, it, I mean, I know we did uh, practices occasionally to get this, the uh, landing crane rigged, and I, I think we got it down to 20 minutes, you know. The principal keeper at the time said, oh, we'll practice getting it done quickly. So we've got more time, you know, to, um, and we've got it down to 20 minutes. So that was good. We were quite proud of ourselves to get it down to 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, are there any storms that stand out in your memory that uh, you experienced at, at those places? I'd say Eddie Stone or Wolf Rock? Um, well, yeah, the Wolf was um, was very impressive, you know, the, I mean, when the, the wave, the southwest swell would come and hit it, mm-hmm. and the whole tower would shake, and there was a sort of like a woof, like, you know, as the water went right over the top. But the thing that always got me was very occasionally, you got used to that woof, but very occasionally you'd hear just a bang, you know, bang, and you thought, it sounded like almost like something solid. Uh, and that was quite frightening, and the tower would shake. The water coming, you know, white water coming down the outside of the of the lantern, you know. So it used to come right over the top, you know. And come, it was uh, very impressive. Wow! Amazing wow. structure, you know, the Wolf Rock. Yeah, well, they all they all are. I mean, going mm. back to uh, Bell Rock being the oldest standing lighthouse of that type in Scotland, uh, we're yeah. over two hundred years old. It's it's absolutely incredible how they built those those oh, towers. Yeah, fantastic, yes. Granite blocks, dovetailed granite blocks, and all mm. that. Just the the stories of the building of those places are incredible. It is. Yeah. So uh, just one more question about the uh, Eddie Stone and Wolf Rock. You mentioned uh, the no no uh, showers or anything like that and primitive bathroom. Was mm-hmm. there, uh, there was, there were cisterns in the basement. Is that right? For the water storage? Is that in the bottom yes. of the tower? Mm-hmm. Yeah. At the, the bottom uh, under the, you know, it was a, a, a huge tank, you know, um, in the base of the tower, which stored the water, you know, yeah. yeah. Was it uh, was it all delivered? Was your water supply de- delivered, or did was some of it, or at least some of it, rainwater? How did that work? Uh, well, the um, water that we drank was delivered by boat, obviously, and mm-hmm. put in the storage tanks. The water that we used for washing and washing dishes, washing the floors, was collected from the lantern uh, rainwater. You know, so we, we had a it was stored in the further up the tower yeah 
Oh, okay. Okay. And you probably had like a pump in the kitchen or something like that. Was it? Uh, yes, it was, it was pumped up. Yeah. Every morning that was part of the routine. You know, you pump up the, the fresh water to a tank further up the tower. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the rainwater of course was just gravity fed from the top down to the, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Next mm. you were at uh, Linmouth Foreland Lighthouse uh, in Devon. Uh, you spent seven years there. I believe that was the longest you spent in any single light station. Do I have all yeah. that, those facts correct? It, it is, yes. Uh, Linmouth was a lovely place to be. Mm-hmm. Um, very um, lovely scenery on the edge of Exmoor. And we got our water from a stream there, uh, Coddle Coombe, it was called. Hmm. And uh, the water used to... We used to get it from Exmoor. Um, the only problem with Linmouth was in the winter, it was north-facing, so there was a huge hill behind it, and so it was, you're in the dark, you know, you didn't get the sun in the winter there. That was uh, uh, just a small problem. It wasn't really a problem. It was such a nice place to be. Yeah. And when I was there, it was classed as a rock station because it was slightly isolated, you know, so... Uh, it was really nice. I really enjoyed my time there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty, I haven't been there, but it's pretty dramatic in the pictures, that steep hill you mentioned, that mm. must have made uh, life interesting, but it looks like a, a beautiful place. It is. Anything else before we move on uh, that you uh, especially remember about the the Linmouth station? Um, well, Linmouth, um, I remember being cut off by snow. Of course, Exmoor used to get bad snow, you know, so we only had a single track road, which hairpin bends going up to the main road at the top. So I I think it was about 1974, 75, something like that. And we had a very bad snowstorm. We were cut off, you know, there um, for some time. So that, that was one um, particular, you know, they had to bring the army in uh, and we went up to the local pub, which was called the Blue Ball, and we ha- had to sort of walk, get get myself up there to get the bread and milk and everything and take it back down to the lighthouse. But, um, yeah, nice place overall, a good place. It yeah. was very handy, the, the, uh, being a, a pub, you know, the Blue Ball, <laughs> so you could also... <laughs> Have a few pints as well. <laughs> That's handy. That's a good thing to have handy when you're at a at a light station. Yeah. Uh, so you spent some time at Longstone, yeah, uh, which is in the Farne Islands off the northeast coast. I, when I was uh, in your area in 2017, I got to visit Longstone, and it's one. I would put it. Uh, on, I don't know. Probably my top ten favorite lighthouse visits. I just really enjoyed. Uh, visiting there, um, partly because of its its history. It's a very old station, was uh, probably best known as the, the home of the famous lighthouse heroine, Grace Darling, the daughter mm-hmm. of the keeper. She and her father rescued a number of people from a shipwreck and quite, mm-hmm. quite famous. And there's the uh, Grace Darling uh, Museum near there and her grave site. And uh, it's just, and when I emailed you, I, I sent you a picture that I took there of a gray seal, a young gray yeah, seal yeah. on the path <laughs> when you're walking from the boat to the lighthouse. It was a, the official greeter there. And uh, that's, and that, that's another thing that made it memorable for me. So yeah. what was uh, life at Longstone like? Oh, yeah. Longstone, like you, probably one of my favorite lighthouses as well. 
the wildlife, you know, the, the seabirds, the grey seals. And also in the summer, you used to have a lot of people coming out and visitors' boats, which was, which was nice. You know, we, they used to bring us the newspapers and that kind of thing. So that was a nice aspect. Um, and also it was very good to get lobsters. We used to get them out of um, holes at low water spring tides. We used to go around with, a, with like a hooked iron sort of rod and we used to get them out of these pull them out of the holes you know so it was a very good place for getting lobsters mm -hmm. yeah all in all it was a very good place i liked it really enjoyed it yeah and it, and it was always changing you know i mean the high water and low water you know the rocks were covered and then they were uncovered and one morning i remember waking up there and the whole rock was covered with jellyfish had been like an invasion of jellyfish. So everywhere in low water was covered with these big jellyfish all over the place, you know. Hmm. Yeah, very unusual to see. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's all, all kinds of uh, interesting wildlife around there. Uh, another thing that's kind of unusual about Longstone is the lens or kind of a double lens. Yeah, that's right. A spectacle lens, which, yeah, very unusual. I don't think there's, I think it's the only one I've seen. It's the only one I've seen. I, I believe it's considered for first order, right? Fresnel yeah. uh, classical lens, but double, as you said, like, looks like spectacles, like two lenses uh, yeah. you know, on each side of each other and the whole thing rotates. And uh, mm. uh, I was lucky enough to, to get up in that lantern room when I was there. Mm. So that must have uh, required a lot of uh, cleaning <laughs> that lens when you were there. It, it did. Yes. It's um, I, re I remember that, but one thing I remember about the Longstone, I was once there for um, when it was foggy and the fog lasted, I think it was about three days solid. And I could never get used to the fog signal there. It was a siren. And if you're asleep, some fog signals you get used to but because of the time lapse. I never, you know, just get off to sleep and then, ooh, you know, it start yeah. again. And I never... And, and for three days solid, we had that, you know, that, that's the thing I remember. And I think, oh, God, you know, <laughs> <laughs> no sleep. Yeah. Well, you, you eventually got used to it, did you? Or sort uh, of? I never, I never, got, used, <laughs> I never yeah. got used to the Longstones fog signal. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I want to talk about the one at Souter, but we'll get to that in a, oh, yeah, yeah, that in a moment. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I, let me ask you a general question before we talk about Souter. These lights where you were stationed in those days, were they, had they been converted to electricity? Did they still operate on kerosene? Um, well, the first uh, light, when I went to Small's Lighthouse off the Pembrokeshire coast, probably the most remote uh, uh, Trinity House Lighthouse, uh, that was that had two oil lights, uh, the main navigation light and the, the low light, which used to sh shine over some rocks, you know, hats and barrels, rocks that had two, uh, um, which entailed a lot more work. We used to call LMO, light mineral oil, as opposed to PGO, petroleum gas oil. And, and I, it also had an explosive fog signal there. And I remember one day, uh, was very busy there. We're, do, we're doing a, a radio test with other lighthouses and the fog signal was going, you know, so I had to keep dashing up and putting the explosive in, starting the two oil lights, which entailed a lot more work, work 
it took uh, 15 minutes to put a, a little tin of paraffin underneath to heat the Bunsen burners up. So there were two lights to do that. And then, so all three of us were dashing round there, you know. Uh, and I thought, well, I was straight 18 miles out, and we're working like Trojans, you know, <laughs> in thick fog, you know, it was madness, you know. Yeah. Huh. Wow. Yeah, Smalls is uh, quite remote and has quite some interesting history too. Mm. Uh, when wh- What years are we talking about the, where you were at Smalls? Uh, Smalls, I went there when I was um, a super SAK, super oh, okay. yeah, yeah. So that would be 1967, mm-hmm. yeah, the summer of 1967. Okay, yeah. and yeah. then I went to um, Whitby, and Whitby was an oil light as well, mm-hmm. uh, an occulting light. And was there anywhere else? Um, no, they were the only two oil lights I went to, yeah, okay. Yeah, but did some of the some of the stations have uh, the ones that are rotating lights? Was that all? Was the rotation electrified by that time, or did you have any you had to crank by hand to get to rotate the lenses? Oh yes, yes. Uh, the smalls was like that. Mm-hmm. Um, Sutter Point was like that. Yeah, Whitby was like that too. You had to, um, even though it was an occulting light, but which was like a, um, a kind of a a thing came over the light and stopped there for say five seconds and then came up again. Right. Uh, you know, but uh, it had to be wound by hand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's, let's talk about Suter a bit. You were there for, I believe two different stretches. Mm. Uh, I did visit there a few years ago and uh, it's a beautiful place. Uh, mm. It seems like it would have been a pretty pleasant place to live mostly uh, was it, it? it was and, mm-hmm. and of course it was uh, near a town or near towns uh transport links were good so, and it was near where i live you know so i could get back and forwards to home and generally it was a it was really pleasant mm-hmm. uh, the, the one thing unusual thing that occurred there and i, I found out this uh, after i'd left there that there were there was a story about the ghost there Oh. Um, and, and we used to hear in in the living room that we used as a watch room, we used to hear sounds above in the bedroom as though people were walking around. But we afterwards found out that it was because of the ground underneath Sutter Point, which was coal mine. It had been a mine underneath, you know. And uh, then when we looked at the ceiling, there were fine hairline cracks but that started the ghost story, you know, people walking around upstairs. Ah, okay. Yeah. Uh, huh. I, I really enjoyed my visit there. And when we were there, the foghorn was activated, was was blasted ooh, for yeah, us. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> tell me about the, the horn at, at Suter. Well, yeah, that was um, uh, actually um, the fog signal. I used to sometimes feel... Um, a little bit, I thought, oh, God, three o'clock in the morning, I'm going to have to start this fog signal. And I was thinking about all the sleeping people, you know, around, because it used to go all over Tyneside and Wearside. I mean, my dad, who was alive at the time, he lived, oh, about 10 miles away, you know, 12 miles away. And he said, oh, when I went there, he said, I'll see you start the fog signal at three o'clock <laughs> in the morning. You woke me up, you know, so that grunt on the diaphone, you know, that carried a long way. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I you feel it right through your entire body. That's for it sure. Could, yeah, yeah. The bass is is incredible. What a what a sound. I uh, I have that on on video. Uh, yeah. Our uh, tour group in the sort of uh, in the open area between the lighthouse and the Fox Signal building there. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll tell you another mm -hmm. story there, Jeremy. I, I was at Portland Bill, and Portland Bill is another diaphragm <laughs> fog signal. And what happened there, there's a bit like Suter Point, there was a lot of land between the lighthouse and the sea. And um, they started the fog signal there, and I think some woman that was in front of the lighthouse had a heart attack, you know. So after that, before starting the fog signal, we had to transmit a message, a, a loudspeaker message, saying the fog signal is about to start, you know, to provide in case anybody else had a heart attack, you know, the shock of it, you know. The, yeah, mm. I can understand that. Uh, you know, mm. I uh, mm -hmm. I don't find it that hard to believe that that could give somebody a heart attack, yeah. <laughs> having, having experienced that. So you live near Souter now, right? Uh, yes, yes. Um, I, I was the last one there. Um, mm -hmm. Again, it was a it was a rock station, classed as a rock station, as it you know got nearer and near automation. Right. So we did a month on, a month off. Yeah. And then the uh, National Trust decided to take it over when it was decommissioned. So the last few months I was there, I was acting as more or less a caretaker at the lighthouse. Yeah. Okay. Are you involved with it at all today with the National Trust? Uh, occasionally I go over there, you know, but. Um, it's just a little bit too far for me to act as like a, a guide or anything like that, even though I wouldn't mind doing that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, I can see it out the window there in the distance. Yeah. yeah. It's a beautiful area. Yeah. Uh, so, so you were the last keeper at Souter. Uh, yeah. And uh, I believe you were the last or one of the last keepers at St. Mary's Lighthouse on the East yes, Coast. Yes, uh, I was. Yeah. Um, uh, my time at St. Mary's was strange, a bit convoluted, because when I worked at Lynmouth, I did month on, month off, and then a house became vacant at St. Mary's, and me living locally, they asked if I wanted it. You know, you either got a ha house allowance or you got a house. So I um, said, yes, I would like it. So on my month off, I lived there, even though I had a flat, so I rented my flat out lived at St. Mary's and then went back and forward to Souter. Occasionally I lived at my girlfriend's house. I lived at my parents' house. Uh, so sometimes when I was filling in forms, I never knew I had about four or five different addresses. <laughs> and then later I worked from home in Tynemouth and I went into St. Mary's once a day. It was semi-automatic then. And I could see the St. Mary's from my back window, you know, so, um, and I went there every day to do routine maintenance and everything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you could ring the lighthouse up and it would tell you that everything was functioning correctly, you know. So St. Mary's was, and of course it was a place I used to go to when I was a kid, as a child, you know, it was a, uh, being a, a, an island every six hours, it was an interesting place to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember you have to walk out there at, back and forth yeah. at low tide. Did that uh, did that cause uh, problems? I know it causes problems occasionally. In fact, I, I just saw a news article in the past couple of weeks. Maybe you saw that 
about a couple being uh, stuck there. They were in the lighthouse and, they, and yeah, they, the staff closed it, not realizing anybody was in there and they were stuck there, uh, had to yeah. be rescued. They, they couldn't walk back because of the tide. Did, yeah. In your experience, did things like that happen occasionally? Yes, it always if you're on the lighthouse, there would be people knocking on your door, you know, so you'd invite them in, give them a cup of tea. <laughs> but the thing that I always remember is when I was there, it was when I was living there, you know, I mean, when I a month off from Lynmouth, I had a girlfriend there and I wasn't married and I wanted her to stay the night. And she said, no, I want to get back home. And I said, OK. And it was getting dark, you know, and the tide was coming in. But if it was just lapping over the top of the causeway, you could see the white causeway. Uh, so it was quite safe, as I thought. However... I went across and we got about three quarters of the way over the hundred yards or so causeway and the engine stopped. Water had got into the engine and she thought it was a huge joke. You know, she thought, I said, this is serious stuff, you know. So we both had to get out and push the car up and there's a slope at the end. And fortunately, people at the other end, I'd say some lads, you know, came and they helped us. Uh, I'm a bit ashamed of that because as a lighthouse keeper I should know you know <laughs> the tides and everything so yeah. the, the car was a write-off we managed to get it up to the the car park at the end but the salt water had got into the engine you know so I'm ashamed to say that really <laughs> well the, yeah but you survived you and your girlfriend uh and that's the important thing uh, yeah it could have been worse I mean the car could have been washed off the right and it, really you know so uh, I yeah. mightn't even have been a lighthouse keeper anymore after that. <laughs> yeah, losing your car is one thing, but you don't want to lose any any people. So it's uh, no, lucky that no. wasn't wasn't worse. I want to talk about your your last uh, station at your end of your career, North Foreland. Anything else about St. Mary's? No, just that it was such a nice place. It was, mm -hmm. and you always had people to talk to because it's such a, a popular area, you know, for local people. So you you could. People were always talking to you. It was a very much um, a great place to meet people and yeah. talk. Yeah. Yeah. It is beautiful. I, I really enjoyed visiting there. Before we talk about North Foreland, I just want to back up. And uh, when we were speaking before we really uh, started recording here, uh, you mentioned that you were briefly at Europa Point, uh, Gibraltar. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's really interesting. And can you also explain why that was a Trinity House lighthouse? Well, Trinity House at one time, you know, when it was the Imperial Lighthouse uh, Service. Right. It had lighthouse all over the Commonwealth or the British Empire, I suppose, then. And the only ones I think that were left were Europa Point and um, Cape Pembroke in the Falkland Islands. They mm -hmm. were the, and, and, oh yeah, there was another one, um, Oh, I can't think of the name of it. In the West Indies. I was going to say, um, I know the, the Imperial Lighthouse Service built some in the Bahamas. Oh, yeah, it was Sombrero, called Sombrero. Okay. And you'd think, oh, that's, that would be fantastic. Palm trees and all that kind of thing. But it wasn't. It was a barren rock. But at one time, they had them all over the place, you know, Bombay. And, uh, and unfortunately, I think a lot of the records about that are missing now because uh, Trinity House had a fire during the war. You know, it was bombed and all that. And they lost a lot of their records about the Imperial Lighthouse Service. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but Gibraltar was really marvellous, you know, because of the weather, you know, lovely sunny weather and warm. Yeah, and, yeah it was nice. Yeah. Must have been really interesting. So North Foreland was your last station in Kent, in, uh, yeah. southeastern England. Uh, what was uh, unique about North Foreland? Well, uh, North Foreland, again, it was um, in, a, in a kind of um, suburban area. It was a really nice place. Um, but, of course, it guarded the, the notorious Goodwin Sands. Uh, the ship swallower, as they call the Goodwin Sands, you know, um, there were light, light vessels there, South Goodwin, North Goodwin, North Foreland protected that, as well as guiding ships in the channel to go into the Thames estuary. So it was a very historic lighthouse, I suppose, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And did you enjoy your time there? I did, yes. And of course, there was that in the closing ceremony, we prepared all the grounds. I think we laid, made the lawn nice and, uh, you know, all kinds of things went on. You know, it was a very neat station. Yeah. And then we had uh, two great big marquees in the grounds and the Duke of Edinburgh and all the elder brethren came. Yeah. Uh, all the office staff from Trinity House and other lighthouse keepers. It was a really nice day. A sad day. Yeah. But uh, nevertheless a very moving sort of day, you know. And then yeah. at night, we all, six keepers, the last remaining six keepers all went into broad stairs and we had a a night out, you know, <laughs> which mm-hmm. was really good. Yeah. yeah, well, you certainly deserve that. But just to be clear, North Foreland was the last Trinity House light to be uh, basically automated and de-staffed, right? Yeah. So you were one of the the last crew of six uh, keepers there. How far in advance did you know that? What what was it like uh, knowing that you were one of the last lighthouse keepers in, in England? Well, um, the last two or three years in Trinity House, you knew that, that every station you went to, it was, was like going down a tunnel. And you right. knew that, and your, your time got shorter and so, shorter at each station you went to. And uh, so we knew it was coming. And then uh, I was lucky enough to be, you know, with length of service and everything, to be one of the last six. So it was uh, it was really uh, quite a privilege to be one of the last six keepers. And that was in the whole of the UK, including Scotland and Ireland as well. You know, so it was really, it was really something, you know, sad, sad day though. Yeah. You know, you, you lived a, a lot of history there. Um, not that, not, I'm not saying you're old or anything. I'm just, oh, no, I'm no. <laughs> you played I, a... often have, I often have to say, oh, it was, you know, in the 1960s, I thought that, that's the 1960s, not the 1860s. <laughs> <laughs> well, believe me, I remember a lot about the 1960s. Uh, yeah, yeah. A yeah. good time, a great time. Yeah. Interesting time, that's for sure. It was interesting. A, we're, in, yeah. we're in interesting times today, and sometimes I think this is probably the most and I don't know, I don't want to say if it's uh, in a good way or bad way, but probably the most interesting time since the 1960s that we're living in and now, mm. seems to me. After you left North Foreland, can you maybe just uh, fill in a little bit about what, what's, uh, what's happened in the years between? That was 1998. I know you've been uh, asked a lot of questions about what it was like being a lighthouse keeper, like I'm asking you today, but what else have you been doing uh, since then? 
Well, when I left, um, I had a few sort of jobs um, to, to fill in, uh, delivering, delivering Indian meals, Chinese meals, that sort of thing. And then I, uh, a job came up again, just a five minute walk away from me on the Tyne Pier, the North Tyne Pier, which you would have probably seen when you were at Sutter Point. I did. Uh, it was called a pier attendant. And of course, there's a lighthouse at the end of the PA, you know, so yeah. I did that um, just in the summer months. And uh, I also did a spell on the uh, Swing Bridge in Newcastle. I don't know if you... I was uh, there, yeah. Were you there? Yeah. And that, that's run by the Port of Tyne, you know, mm-hmm. which, of course, the, the pier is as well. So I did a spell up there as well. And then... Um, I decided to, to finish at the, you know, I was getting on a bit and I thought, well, I can now afford to retire. I've got my old age pension and of course the pension from Trinity House. So I left it at that and, and that mm-hmm. was, that was it. Yeah. 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 Are you involved at all with the ALK, the Association of Lighthouse Keepers? Uh, yes. Yes. I've written a few articles for them. Mm-hmm. And of course, Neil, I'm in touch with Neil and I know the, most of them, you know, he do, does a fantastic job there. Absolutely. All of them. Yeah. Terrific. Yeah. yeah. And Neil Hargreaves, who I Neil also Hargreaves, interviewed, yes. who's a founder of the ALK. Yeah, and uh, yeah. you might probably know about uh, Ian Duff in Scotland, a lighthouse keeper. Yes. Who's, yeah. Uh, he's, he's another one. I mean, I don't really know him personally, but, yeah. um, and um, all the ladies who do all the, the editing and the, you know, they, they do a marvelous job, really. Yeah, the magazine is excellent. It's it's a really good organization. I'm glad it. I'm glad it's around. And the, and the strange thing is, since the all lighters are becoming automatic and everything, there seems to have been be more interest in lighthouses than there was at when they were manned, fully manned. You know, they they're really. Yeah. Uh, well, a lot of us, I think we don't want to lose that history. You know, no, it's important no. to write it down or record it in different ways. So it's not yes. it's not forgotten uh, because in uh, in the UK and, and um, the United States and most of the world, uh, lighthouse traditional lighthouse keeping is pretty much in the past. Yeah. Uh, with a few exceptions, but for the most part, it's uh, very much in the past. Yeah. So I, mean, I used uh, to say it was a, a simple job straightforward simple it was sort of like a, a 19th century job in a 20 20th 21st century world you know and you, you knew mm-hmm. inevitable automation was going to take yeah. it over yeah yeah just uh something uh this is uh kind of off the track but i i wanted to ask you i, I when i was uh googling looking for more information about you i found a thing uh about a recording you were oh, involved yes. with in 2005 it was something called "If the Sea Replied" yes. by Tim Garland. Uh, so, what what was that all about? Well, that uh, he came to the house here. Um, Tim Garland, he's uh, a famous jazz musician. Well, a, a musician, you know, he's marvelous. Um, I'm a jazz fan in any case, you know. But um, he uh, he came to the house, and he I, th- I think he's originally from London, but he I don't know. He might still live in uh, Whitney Bay where St. Mary's is, and um, he was taken by St. Mary's. You know, he, he was impressed with St. Mary's and the sea in general, and he got in touch with me, knowing that I had something to do with St. Mary's, 
and he interviewed me uh, and in one of his compositions, probably that probably if the C replied, I meant to check it on Spotify before I came on. Mm. Uh, my voice is, is discernible in the middle of one of these tracks talking about the sea and lighthouses, you know. So he incorporated my voice into this one of the, the tunes, you know. So, <laughs> in fact, when I'm going to have a look at it when I get off here and, and, and find it on Spotify. So yeah. it's very, very, it's almost like an echoey voice, you know, my voice in the background, you know, and then yeah. there's music on top of it, yeah. Wow, sounds really interesting. I I wasn't able when I read about it. I wasn't able to actually hear it, but I, I maybe I'll check it out on Spotify and see if I can find it yeah. there. You make me think of uh, if you remember the, the the band Pink Floyd, the some of their albums like uh, Dark Side of the Moon. They have a man talking through through it. It makes me think of that. I don't know if it's anything like that, but that's what it yeah. what it and brings to mind. You, you know that you know that song. My father was the keeper of the Eddie Stone. Oh, of Lines. course, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I've uh, had a, we had a already stone. We had a little um, uh, Shirley Abbey. I don't know if you remember her. She she sent the the um, words yeah. to it. She sent it to the lighthouse and we had it on the wall, you know, <laughs> the little frame. <laughs> okay, well that's good. That's appropriate. Uh, yeah, yeah, Burl Ives, the American singer, uh, had a, kind of a hit with that, and uh, right. quite yeah, a few, yeah. uh, you know, I think uh, singers on both sides of the the Atlantic mm-hmm. uh, saying that. Yeah. So, uh, occasionally, that, so yeah. occasionally, I tell my daughter, her, I say, "Well, your father was the keeper of the Eddie Stone Light, <laughs> but he didn't sleep with <laughs> one fine night." <laughs> yeah. One time, I gave a lecture, and the person uh, this is not that long ago, just in the past year. Uh, the a woman uh, who, who put on the lecture asked me if there are any famous lighthouse songs. And I said, well, there's the keeper of the Eddie Stone line. She said, will you sing it for us? This is in front of an audience. I think it was over a hundred people. And I actually sang a, a couple of verses of the, and they, that got a huge laugh. Yeah. Uh, so, so if our listeners yeah. aren't familiar with it, uh, Google uh, keeper of the Eddie Stone light. And I think there's a video on YouTube uh, with a of Burl Ives uh, version of the song. Yeah. 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 Good song, yeah. Oh yeah. Any uh, other thoughts? Just general thoughts about uh, the automation and de-staffing of lighthouses. What are your What are your feelings about that? Well, uh, I think it's sort of inevitable, you know. Like I say, with automation, but I, I still think that the there it's important to be there, especially in isolated spots. You know, Wolf Rock, Eddie Stone, Smalls, and the other thing I think about. There are certain lighthouses, the Longstone being one of them, Beachy Head being another, that people from land couldn't see what was going on. On the Longstone, you couldn't see, you know, the Longstone was the outer rock, and you could see things going on that people on shore couldn't see. Right. In fact, I mean, when I was there, a coaster hit the Knivestone, which is a tiny little rock further to seaward, and a yacht also went aground when I was there. And I used to think it's useful to have human eyes. Yeah. And Beachy Head is the same because Beachy Head goes out to a, a point and you used to get a lot of people stranded on there and nobody could see them from the top of the cliffs. And also it's a notorious suicide spot. I mean, if you go to Beachy Head, there's loads of cars, you know, wreckages of cars and people have driven over, you know. Wow. So you'd be, you'd be kind of good person to be there you know so you could see everything that was going on 
But yeah. the automation of them, uh, inevitable, really. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I would say, but uh, for reasons like you just said, having uh, eyes out there at some of these remote remote places, that's why the country of Canada still has over 50 staffed lights on mostly on the West Coast in British Columbia. Yeah, Um, I would imagine over there, there's even more, you know, the remoteness of some of them. And yeah, I would imagine so. I've... uh, interviewed yeah. a couple of couple of them so uh you know they like having those eyes there and they've been, been involved in some rescues for sure mm-hmm. in recent mm-hmm. years do you think it's important to preserve lighthouses oh without a doubt yeah i think that uh to me they're like they're like castles they're like churches you know they're very iconic and symbolic and you know i think without a doubt they should be left and preserved yeah definitely yeah. And the, the story as well as the building. Like, right. You know, yeah. Yeah. You know, they go hand in hand, the structures and the, the history. Do you feel optimistic about the future of lighthouse preservation? I do. Yeah. Well, because of the likes of you, because Neil Hargreaves and all the staff of these lighthouse associations, I think there'll be um, the National Trust, um, our local council runs St. Mary's, you know. Yeah. Uh, the one thing about St. Mary's at the moment, though, that I'm not too pleased about is that they're letting it run down a little bit. I think the council could spend a lot of money yeah. on it to paint it and everything because it's such a, a tourist attraction. It brings in money to the local area, you know, so, yeah. Yeah, well, that's true in a lot of places. And I, obviously through the uh, the COVID pandemic, it hasn't made things any easier to uh, for these places where they, they missed out on a lot of... Uh, income uh you know visitation was was down some of the places were closed for for quite a while so it's been it's been a rough period but but yeah saint i hope saint mary's uh gets what it needs it's a beautiful place yeah i have i have two final questions for you for bonus points okay Okay, Uh, all right first of all what was your favorite part of being a lighthouse keeper favorite bit was um the varying nature, you know, you, oh, you you never knew where you were going to go to next. Different lighthouses, uh, different parts of the country, uh, different keepers as well. You're never stuck. You know, if you're in an office, you're stuck with the same people for, you know, years and years. You're always moving on. Plus, it was a, a job, not an easy job. I mean, well, easy in, in some lighthouses were very easy. It was a good, easy, good life. Uh, others, you know, like the the, the wolf uh, was, you know, you took the rough with the smooth, and and it was a just a good life, you know. Really, uh, uh, some people wouldn't like the loneliness of it, but saying that, again, it was so different. I mean, the wolf was lonely, as yeah, small as lonely, but when I went to Portland Bill, you used to ha- sometimes have about two or 3,000 people up and down the tower each day. You know, you're, you're sick of people, you know, so it was either all or nothing. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Would you do it all again? Oh, without a doubt, yeah. I was lucky to have sort of stumbled on it, really, because when I joined, I thought, well, I mightn't like this. I mightn't be able to take the loneliness and I might leave, you know. And, of course, at that time, jobs were easily available. And, and what you did... In the 60s, you had a lot of people joining the lighthouse service, sort of like hippies, you know, they'd the, the arrive and they'd the do a, a year, six months, and then move on. But I didn't, you know, and a lot of others didn't, you know. So 
There you are, 32 years. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a pretty, pretty fascinating career. Let me ask you one final question for extra, extra bonus points. Given everything that's happening in our world, and there's uh, a lot of things in the, in the news, obviously, we're speaking in, in early March here during the invasion of Ukraine, a lot happening. Do you feel that lighthouses are still relevant in our world? I do. I do, really. Yeah. I mean, um, lighthouses were like universal things. Everywhere has got them with a coastline. I'm not sure about Switzerland, but but most countries have them. Um, I mean, think of the Irish lights, you know, who... You know, they've got them right round the coast, even in the Troubles, you know, the Irish Troubles and everything. So they speak a universal language, you know. I think um, that's one really, really good thing about lighthouses, yeah. Yeah. Help to everybody. Exactly, yeah. They didn't discriminate who they they helped. Um, Mm. And uh, it is is a universal language. That's a good way to put it. Mm. Well, David Appleby, this is fantastic. I appreciate you spending so much time with me. It's flown by. We've uh, scraped the surface. There's probably a a lot of stories uh, you could talk about. Maybe we can do it again sometime, I I hope. Yeah, yeah. Oh, certainly. Yeah, yeah. So uh, thank you so much and take care. And uh, just it's been a real pleasure. Thanks, David. Okay, cheers, uh, Jeremy. The Association of Lighthouse Keepers, or ALK, was mentioned in the interview with David Appleby. You can learn more about the ALK at alk.org.uk. Members of the ALK receive their quarterly journal, which is called LAMP. You can see an index of the articles on their website, and you can order back issues. Yeah, the ALK is a great organization. I interviewed the founder of the ALK, Neil Hargreaves, for an earlier episode of the podcast. Also, former Scottish lightkeeper Ian Duff, who's currently the president of the ALK. And I just interviewed another English keeper, Barry Hawkins, uh, who's also an accomplished artist. And that uh, interview will be in the podcast in a few weeks. Thanks, as always, to all the volunteers, members, and staff of the U.S. Lighthouse Society and its chapters and affiliates. To learn more about the tours, the passport program, preservation grants, and everything else the society offers, check out uslhs.org. If you listen to this podcast using Apple Podcasts or any platform that allows you to post reviews, please rate and review us. And please share word of the podcast on social media. The Dutch philosopher Desiderius Erasmus once wrote, quote, give light and the darkness will disappear of itself, unquote. We're sending our love and wishes for peace to the people of Ukraine. To everyone, thanks for listening and keep a good light. <laughs>